Well, good morning. It is, uh, it is so good seeing all of you guys. If you are making your way back to your seat, um, let's go ahead and grab your Bibles. Um, before we get into the Word and before we pray, I, I just want to remind you of uh, this evening at 6 o'clock, our member gathering. Uh, I sent you guys an email of the three uh, elder nominations that we've presented to you. Um, and just want to clarify, we are not affirming any elders tonight. It is simply a time for us to gather. Uh, where I just really want to take time and disciple you guys and talk about what is an elder? What does an elder do? What is the biblical qualifications of an elder? What is the role of an elder in our church? What is our process of nominating elders? And what does it look like for the church to affirm uh, an elder nomination? And then if you have any questions that we're going to talk about, it, please come uh, with questions. Uh, so that's what we're going to do uh, tonight. So if you are a covenant member, part of your responsibility as a covenant member is to participate in these member gatherings because we're a family and if a family doesn't gather it can't be much of a family and so it's so important for you to participate in that so please uh, make it a priority if you are unable to physically participate send me an email I will send you uh, the team's link uh, to participate virtually and that's going to be tonight and then God willing um, after that it gives you a couple weeks to process uh, maybe come and talk to us uh, or wh whatever you need uh, to process and then September 11th uh, we will affirm God willing the elder nominations um, but let me pray for us and then let's get into the word. Lord, I thank you uh, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you that you love us and care for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to die for us. You didn't call us to come to you, but you came to us. And Lord, you are the king of all kings, the kingliest of kings. You who took an object of scorn and turned it to an object of glory. You rule from a tree. And Lord, I do pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Holy Spirit, can you convict us? Can you reveal truth to us? Can you open up our ears, our eyes, and hearts? Without you, Holy Spirit, we cannot understand the word. We cannot apply the word to our lives. So can you make the word speak to us plainly? Can you overwhelm us and help us to behold you, our King, our Lord? May we walk out of here in awe of you saying, man, life is hard, but don't we have an incredible King who is superior and who has authority over all? Well, that's my prayer for us this morning. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, let's turn to uh, John. We're going to be in John chapter 19, verse 1 to 22. Um, and so last week, as John is kind of recording his narrative of the cross, one of the major themes he's been working on, especially uh, of the trial of Jesus before Pilate, is the, this the idea of the kingship or the reign of Jesus. 
Four times Pilate would refer to Jesus as king of the Jews. And when Jesus was asked if he was a king, Jesus, in a sense, acknowledged his kingship by defining his kingdom or defining his reign and his kingship. And and when he was defining his kingdom, he's not talking about a geographic location or a territory, but rather what he's talking about is his kingship, his reign. And so the first thing that we saw last week, he indicated about his kingship that it has a different origin it has a different order in other words it's not of this world and because it's not of this world it operates differently and because his kingship is not of this world that also means he is a different type of king and then last week he also kind of indicated that his kingship testifies to the truth the truth of who God is. And so in our in the account today, we're going to continue with this theme of Jesus as king. Because what we're going to see in our story is not only does Pilate call Jesus king, but we even see the soldiers, in a sense, dress Jesus up in, in a purple robe, put a crown of thorns on his head, and in a sense, they are mocking him but calling him king. They're speaking more of what they know of. And then when, Pi, when, Pi, when Jesus uh, is being executed and he's going to the cross, we also see the sign that is nailed above the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And really what we're going to see today is that Jesus is a king unlike any other king. So let's look at our text and and, and kind of tease out the theme of Jesus as king. John 19 verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Now, we've already seen in the previous chapter that Pilate has declared Jesus innocent. We see this in in John 18, verse 38. So if Jesus is innocent, it seems very surprising that Pilate has Jesus taken to be flogged. Like, if he's innocent, why is he being punished? But really what's going on in this flogging, it seems like Pilate is trying to develop another strategy. What Pilate is trying to do is he's trying to get Jesus punished. And as Jesus is punished, he presents Jesus before the Jews. Perhaps the Jews will have sympathy on Jesus and that would allow Pilate to release Jesus. And you're like, well, that's kind of a strange theory. It's really not because Luke, in his account, kind of uh, uh, goes with this idea. Luke 23, verse 16, Pilate says, I will have him punished or whipped and then release him. So the strategy is, let's have Jesus whipped, let's present him before the Jews, let the Jews maybe see Jesus bloody beaten, have sympathy on him, and saying, you know what, I think that's enough, let's just let him go. And what's happening is, during the flogging, we see at one level the cruelty of the soldiers. What are they doing? They are taking a, 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 a crown of thorns and putting it on his head, they're, they're putting a purple robe around him. And then they're pretending to hail him as king. And as they hail and and bow down before him as king, they also slap him in the face. And so at one level, we see the cruelty of the soldiers. But then at another level, 
these soldiers are speaking better than what they know because even in their mockery of Jesus as king, Jesus truly is king. He is the true king. And after Jesus' beating, Pilate presents Jesus before these Jewish authorities. He presents him as beaten, harmless, humiliated figure to help the Jews make an easy decision for Pilate to release Jesus. And so Pilate is saying, here is the man. In other words, when he says, here is the man, he is saying, here is the man that you find so dangerous and so threatening. Can't you see that he is harmless? He looks ridiculous with this thorny crown and this purple robe. If he is king, then he is a harmless, powerless king that doesn't need to be feared and that does not need to be submitted to. And what Pilate is doing is not only is he mocking Jesus, but really what he's doing, he's mocking the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities that see Jesus as a threat that wants to execute Jesus. And he says, it's ridiculous. Look at him. What's wrong with you? And yet the deep irony is, yeah, Jesus is the man. The word made flesh. From a human perspective, they look at Jesus. They see him pathetic, powerless. But in reality, he was displaying his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. The garment the soldiers placed on him, the horrible crown they forced him to wear, the mockery of Pilate presenting Jesus as weak and harmless. What does it reveal to us about our king? If you're taking notes, here's the first thing. That Jesus is a humble king who rules through his suffering. Jesus is a humble king who rules through his suffering. Think about it. In his humility, he reveals his glory. In his suffering, he is saving and delivering his people. Again, he is unlike any other king. Think about what do the kings of the world do? They exalt themselves. They display their strength and they might. And really what they show is a sense of false glory. And in their suffering, their kingdom falls. Because what do they do in their suffering? They transfer their suffering unto their subjects that cause their subjects now to suffer. But not our king. Our king doesn't exalt himself. But in his humility, he rules through his suffering, which means he saves us. Now, like, think about this phrase here. Let me unpack and, and, and think about why is it such good news for us today? That Jesus is a humble king who rules through his suffering. Let's, let's kind of break it up in two parts. Let's first think about Jesus being a humble king. Jesus is a humble king, which means he comes to us instead of us coming to, to him. If we had to come to Jesus, we would never make it. Think about the kings of this world. Do subjects come to them or do they go to their subjects? Subjects go to them. Which means, anybody have any access to a king? Do you think a king knows you? Do you think a king cares about you? You have no access to the king. The king is not going to come to you. You have to come to the king and if you're lucky, you might make it in his presence. 
and then he might give you a second or two and still doesn't know you when you walk away, but not our king. He comes to us. He gives us free access to him. And guess what? He knows you. He calls you by name. And as you stand in his presence, he knows what you're thinking, how you're feeling. He knows what you're struggling with. We have a humble king, but a humble king who rules through his suffering. What does it mean for him to rule through his suffering? He suffered on our behalf. He suffered so that we can be saved. What do earthly kings do in their suffering? They either avoid it or transfer their suffering unto their subjects. Because when an earthly king falls, the earthly kingdom falls, but not our king. And if he can rule through his suffering, that means now he has control over suffering because suffering does not frustrate his plan. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But here's what's going on. As the humiliation of Jesus continues, and Pilate's words are dripping with irony, the Jewish authority is feeling no compassion towards Jesus. They're continuing in their hatred towards Jesus. Jesus is showing us the type of king he is. Let's keep reading our story in verse 6. When the chief priest and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourself, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to the law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus didn't give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And so what's happening is the Jewish authorities are well aware that the charges that they're bringing against Jesus, the only outcome if he is found guilty is that of crucifixion. And so what do they do? They're exhorting Pilate. He is guilty. The charges of him claiming to be king is found to be true. The only outcome that you have, the only choice you have, is to crucify him. And then Pilate turns around to the Jewish authorities. He says, no, you go ahead and crucify him yourself. And In other words, what he's not doing, he's not giving the Jewish authorities uh, the authority to crucify Jesus, but rather in his sarcastic taunt, what he is saying to them is, look, you guys brought him to me for trial. I have conducted his trial, and you're not happy with the judgment I've made. So clearly, you're not going to listen to what I have to say. Just do whatever you want to do. And as the Jewish authorities now are thinking, oh no, things are not going according to plan. We thought it was a done deal. There should be no hearing. The execution should be handled immediately. Now in their strategy, as things are slipping away, now they reveal their true motives. And what's their true motives? It's not about Jesus being king, but rather Jesus claiming to be the son of God. And so now they show their real motives. They don't care about the Roman Empire. They don't care about the threat that Jesus has towards the Roman Empire. Their disagreement is theological. This, their disagreement with Jesus is that he's claiming to be the Messiah, 
And we don't think he is the Messiah. And we want to get rid of him because he is a threat to our religious system and possibly our religious freedom. And they say he is claiming to be the Son of God. Now, Roman officials, senior Roman officials, even though they were very brutal, were very superstitious people. So when a Jewish man would hear somebody to claim to be the Son of God, in their mind they're thinking, ah, yeah, he's claiming to be the Messiah. But to a Roman official who is superstitious, they're not hearing it. They're hearing somebody claiming to be divine because they believe there are certain people that are divine, like emperors, are divine human beings. And so in his superstition, he's thinking, oh no, this is not any normal man. Could this be a divine man? And he continues in his interrogation with Jesus. And he's kind of quite frankly just annoyed because Jesus is not saying a word. And even though Pilate flexes his muscles, Jesus doesn't budge. But here's my favorite part of the story. Look at how Jesus responds to Pilate's irritation and his claim of power and authority. Verse 11 says this. You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him. If it hadn't been given, if it hadn't been given you from above, that this is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, where does Pilate's power and authority come from? It comes from God. Like Pilate might be thinking that he was the one who obtained his power and authority because he was the one who climbed the ladder. He was the one who hard, worked hard, got the education. He was the one through deceit and being ruthless obtained his power. But what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you might have done all those things, but really it was the sovereign hands of the Lord that gave you that power and authority. But what we have to understand with the text is Jesus is not saying that Pilate is innocent in all of this. Pilate's not innocent in any of this. But what he is saying is God is sovereignly in control. And so God's sovereignty does not take away from human responsibility. Both Pilate and the Jewish authorities, they made their their decision on their own. But yet the Lord was sovereign and it did not frustrate his plan. And I don't know about you, but I do think there is so much great hope in verse 11 in the response of Jesus. That all authority, human authority, has been granted by God. If it's been granted by God, then who is in control of everything? God is. So even when we find ourselves with a dictator, even like the Romans who oppress people and just horrendous people, having authority, we can take comfort knowing that somehow in God's crazy plan that we have no idea why he would allow it, their authority ultimately comes from God. And without God, they would not have the authority, which means... Whose idea was crucifixion? Who was orchestrating everything? These men were just a bunch of pawns in God's redemptive plan. And here's the second thing we we learn about Jesus if you're taking notes. We see ultimately Jesus being a humble king and ruling through his suffering. But now we start to see Jesus also as, if you're taking notes, a superior king with all authority. 
He is a superior king with all authority. Like, even in his humiliation, he is sovereign over the proceedings that are taking place. And if he is sovereign over the proceedings, that means his kingdom is unshakable even in the midst of death. He has all authority because it's been given to him. Jesus, after his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, he goes to his disciples. And what does he tell his disciples in Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So why is this good news for us that Jesus is a superior king with all authority? Well, first of all, his, if he's a superior king with all authority, his kingdom is unshakable. And if his kingdom is unshakable and we're brought into his kingdom, what does it guarantee us? Security. That means we are secure because we're under his rule and his reign. And if his rule and his reign is eternal and unshakable, Paul would say, what can separate us from God? Nothing. And if he has authority over every domain, who can fight against him? No one. This is the type of king we have. This is what Jesus is revealing about himself in the midst of the most horrendous coup against Jesus. He is humble and he rules through his suffering. He is superior and he has authority over all. And even though Pilate is trying to flex his muscles and show his power and authority, Jesus just looks at him and says, yeah, that's not yours, bud. It was just given to you. And if it's given to you, it can be taken away because ultimately it belongs to my Father and I and the Father are one. Look at how the, the Jews and, the, and Pilate respond to the king. Look, look, at, look at verse 12. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Now, if you notice verse 12, it starts off with the, with the, with the saying, from that moment. So from that moment, it doesn't mean now all of a sudden Pilate had a full grasp of who Jesus is and what he is saying, but rather he was convinced that regardless of what Jesus did, it does not merit that of crucifixion, that of death. In other words, he really is no threat to Rome. And if he's no threat to Rome, that does not deserve crucifixion. 
But the Jewish authorities, they knew Pilate's weakness. And they exposed it by saying, if you let this man go, you are no friend to Caesar. And Pilate, and Pilate really, he has a lot of reasons to fear that threat because at that time, the, uh, the emperor Tiberius Caesar, he, he was known to be quick to entertain suspicious thoughts. So any hint of suspicious thoughts, he would act in a brutal way and just execute you. So if there might be a hint, it may be true or not, you're out. And so what is Pilate thinking? There might be a hint that I am not no friend of Caesar. So now his hands are forced. But, but, but again, look at this, the, these verses that are so saturated with irony here. In order to execute Jesus, the Jewish authorities who so despised the Roman emperor and the Roman empire all of a sudden make themselves now loyal subjects of Caesar. And when they're presented with the two options, do you want Jesus, who is the king of the Jews, who is a humble king, a superior king, or do you want Caesar, who is known to be ruthless, insecure, and inferior king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. And in that statement by, by them saying it, we have no king by Caesar, not only are they rejecting Jesus as king, but ultimately they're rejecting God as king because their very law insisted that who's the king of Israel? God is. And what they are saying is we have no king by, uh, but Caesar. They are saying he is not the Messiah and we have no messianic hope whatsoever for God is not our king, but Caesar is our king. And the irony is their rejection of the true king and them pledging allegiance to an inferior a ruthless, oppressive king, the king of Rome, he would end up destroying them. And the thing that they try to protect, their temple and the religious system, will end up being completely destroyed by the Romans during the Jewish revolt. So the thing they tried to protect, they ended up losing anyway. And I think there's some application for us here. Their rejection of the king, of God as their king, really shows their spiritual blindness. Like, like with their choice of king, their flimsy shield of spiritual pretending to honor the name of God, like that's just torn away. Their wicked hearts are, are being exposed. Their religious system that they felt was so important that they wanted to protect at all costs, they ended up compromising their own beliefs in the process. Their belief in what the law taught and what they held on so dearly was, we have no king but God, and yet trying to protect this thing that was so precious to them, the very fundamental truth that they held on dear, that was clearly taught in Scripture, they abandoned in order to protect it. And at the end of the day, they lost it. Here is what sin does. Sin is deceitful. And for many of us, we fall into the trap 
of this deceitfulness of sin. Where we're like the Jewish authorities, we, we have this idol, whatever it is, I'm not going to name it, whatever idol you have, that you have a tendency to hold on so dearly to that you would protect it no matter the cost, even if that means you compromise on believing what you know is to be true, to protect it. And as you compromise your beliefs that you know is to be true, that is a non-negotiable, in order to protect it, sin deceives you. And the very thing that you're trying to protect, you end up losing anyway. That's what sin does. Sin is deceptive. It enslaves It makes you do things that you thought you would never do. It makes you say things you thought you would never say. And it will take you to places where you thought you would never go. Even the staunchest, most religious, conservative, fundamental people will abandon their faith to cling to their idols. Which means, as these Jewish authorities needed a savior... We need a savior as well, somebody who can set us free from the idols and the deception and the bondage that we are in as we're so deceived, thinking it would satisfy us. But really what it does, it leads us to destruction. We need a king who is superior, who is humble, and who will come to us and offer us something far greater than anything any idol could ever offer us who could offer us life and freedom in him. And how did the king do it? He offered it through the cross. We're almost done. Let's, let's read the last little passage and then a little bit of application. Second part of verse 16, then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. I'm almost done. Now, in the ancient world, crucifixion was the worst punishment that you could face. It was filled with horror and shame. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of it because there's a point I want to make, but just quickly summarize what's happening. Crucifixion was so brutal that a Roman citizen could not be crucified unless sanctioned by the emperor himself. The person would be beaten to a bloody pulp, stripped naked, And the victim would hang on the cross for hours, maybe days if they're lucky. Well, actually unlucky. And eventually they would die of excruciating suffocation. 
But here's the point I, I want to show, because this is what John is trying to show us. What is he writing the most about? The pain of Jesus or the sign hung about Jesus' head? The sign. Okay. Now, it was customary for the Romans, if a person had to be found guilty and was sentenced to crucifixion, what they would do is they would make a sign and they would hang it around the person's neck. So as the person is carrying their cross to the location of where they would be crucified, there would be a sign hanging around their neck. So that when somebody walks with the cross, all the bystanders could see, why is that person going to the cross? Because the sign is showing the crime that they've committed. And as they're crucified, that sign is taken off their necks and nailed on the cross. And it was a method to instill fear on the people saying, if you commit this crime, this is what's going to happen to you. For Jesus, what was the notice? What was the crime that he committed? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, now, this is significant for, for, for several reasons. The first reason is, in a sense, it makes clear the charges on which Jesus was found guilty on. The charge of being king. In other words, he was found guilty not on what he did, but who he is. He is king. And this is why even Jesus looked at, at, at Pilate in John 18, 37. He says, I was born for this. I have come into the world for this he was charged for who he is king the second significant reason is the words of Pilate was his last act of revenge against the Jews he's already taunted the Jews with Jesus's kingship and he does so again by seeing the Jews as conveniently pledging allegiance to Caesar by insisting that Jesus is not their king. And then he is snickering at the Jews for their powerless, uh, for their powerless king and the mighty power of Rome. Look at your weak, wretched king. And the Jews, they're offended by this. And they're telling Pilate, hey, don't write this. Right, that he claimed to be king, not that he is our king, and Pilate kind of sticks it to them and say, yeah, it's done. Get out of my face. But here's the most significant reason, and here's the big deal. Pilate's malicious motives of humiliating Christ and humiliating the Jews and showing the might of Rome really served God's purpose. Here's how. What was that sign communicating? In three different languages. Who is Jesus? The king. Just, 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 I, ho I hope you get this. Pilate inadvertently was proclaiming to the world, here is the king of all kings. Psalm 96, verse 10 says this, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. It's interesting in the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Bible, says Psalm 96, verse 10, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns from a tree. Look how the Lord just worked through Pilate. 
proclaiming to the world, Jesus is king. Unwittingly, they furthered God's redemptive purposes. Unwittingly, Pilate served as God's prophet, as God's herald, as proclaimer to the world. Here is the king of all kings. Here's the last quote I want to end with. F.F. Bruce said this, The crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory, and he reigns from a tree. Our king is a humble king who reigns through his suffering. He is a superior king with all authority. And even when humans were trying to stick it to him, they were ultimately accomplishing the purpose of the God, declaring to the nations, here is the king of kings. What kind of throne does he have? Not a throne like any other king, but the tree that he, that he hangs on, that he rules from. And that is our king. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. Lord, as, as I'm just being honest, Lord, as I'm reading this narrative, I am just dumbfounded. How even in the most horrendous, the most vilest of people, your sovereign plan gets accomplished. Because you're sovereign over everything. There is nothing that can frustrate your plan. And even in their taunt of you, Lord Jesus, they are speaking more of what they know of. They are proclaiming you as king. And Lord, I do pray that as we look at this text, can we apply it to our hearts? Can we find comfort in the midst of chaos, in the midst of destruction, that you are our king, that you rule and reign, and that nothing can frustrate your plan? And then we can tell to the world, Jesus is king. He is king of all kings. He is a humble king, a good king, a faithful king, a superior king, a king who has all authority, a king who came to die for his subjects. And when you're under the rule and reign of the king, there is freedom, there is life, there is security, for his kingdom is unshakable even in the midst of death. May that comfort our hearts as we live our lives as exiles, wanderers, waiting for our king to fully come and consummate his kingdom once and for all. As we continue to pray, I just want to give you just a moment to maybe meditate on some of these truths that we've proclaimed, the kind of king Jesus is. And for some of you, take time and just praise the king, thank the king. Lift up the name of the king.
and then for others of you, which king do you submit to? The king of self? The king of others? Or the one and only king, King Jesus? What idol are you clinging to that you wanting to protect so much that you find so precious and yet that idol is deceiving you and enslaving you and it will only lead to destruction? Can you this morning release that idol? Get rid of it knowing it will never satisfy you, it never fulfills and realize that Jesus is more precious and can offer more than anything in this world. As we get ready to sit at the table, again, last week we're, we're reminded that we get to sit at the table of our king, not as subjects, but as sons and daughters heirs to the kingdom the part i want to focus on this morning is the security under the rule and reign of the king his kingdom is not fragile nothing can separate you from the king nothing can take you out of his kingdom he has paid for you and he's died for you once and for all and when you receive these elements there's nothing special or magical about them, but it's a physical reminder of what the king has done for me, that I am safe and secure because of what he has done, not me. And by receiving it, what I am saying is I am trusting this king. I am submitting to this king. My allegiance belongs to this king. And that's what I want you to meditate on, which means if you don't submit to the king, then do not participate in these elements because you would not want to declare something that is not true. But if you do declare him as your king and you are submitting to his rule and his authority and you're part of his kingdom, then receive it by faith, believing that our king is a superior king with all authority. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. Our humble king who rules through his suffering, our superior king who has all authority, comes to you and me and says, this is my body given to you. Eat it in remembrance of me. He comes to you and me and says, this is my blood that was shed for you that will wash away all your sins. The new covenant you have in me, drink it in remembrance of me. Can you just take a moment and just thank the Lord? Thank the King of Kings 
the one who rules and reigns. A just, righteous king who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger, and yet rightfully punish sin. A king who took all of our iniquities upon himself so that we could be saved and brought into his kingdom. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We give you all the glory, all the honor. Lord, can you help us to behold you? Can you help us to be overwhelmed by you? And can you help us to trust you and to rest in you? That when life seems hard or when life seems uncertain and it feels like it's falling apart, we can find peace and rest knowing that you are king, you're ruling and reigning, and nothing can frustrate your plans and that all of your plans will come to pass regardless of the evilness of man. For you are sovereign over everything. Help us to trust you, look to you, rest in you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our King?